You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I would ask you this morning to turn to the book of Romans for our scripture reading. It's indicated there that we'll be reading chapter 1 at verse 18 and read through 211. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge The other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. For first for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. 
I'm currently doing a series at night on uh, Linden in the book through the book of Romans, and this is fresh in my mind, so I deliver this message uh, to you from Romans chapter two this morning, verses one through five, with the title "Guilty as Charged." Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in First Timothy chapter one, the Apostle Paul made a statement that I begin the sermon with, and, and, he, and he says there, "This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance." That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. It really is one of those statements that that has a lot more behind it than typically we give it or give credence to at first glance. What did Paul understand about himself? What did he understand about salvation, the glories of the gospel, that he could make that sort of statement that I am? I am chief of sinners. I am. The sad reality is, is that identification to exactly what Paul meant and what he had learned is quite foreign to many even who take up the name of Jesus Christ today. J. Gresham Machen was absolutely right when he said that the church, and if you get this, you get the sermon this morning, the church has the seemingly impossible task of calling the righteous to repentance. Ponder that. The church has the seemingly impossible task of calling the righteous to repentance. We say, of course, as a church, and the reason you gather week in and week out, is that the greatest and most important thing is that Jesus Christ be proclaimed as the only Savior by which men may be saved. The second most important thing that we must know is that you require it. I was really aware of this as a teacher. When I graduated from college, my first teaching gig was at a continuation school in in, uh, high school in California. All of these kids had been kicked out of the public school systems. They were violent. Most of them had been in and out of prison. Their parents were in and out of prison. They were in gangs, um, shootings, all these sort of things, and I was constantly breaking up fights in the classroom. It was a horrible atmosphere. But what struck me was that these these kids knew their depravity. They knew it. And they were often very open to hear my story as they would come to me and ask and talk to me even about Jesus Christ. They never had had really heard the gospel proclaimed to them, but they were living what we just read in Romans chapter 1, this this fallen state of depravity that's really a downward decline. They were living that. They were given over to all manners of evil, and they knew it. And here I was in the middle of that environment. Shortly after, I, I took the position at the local Christian school. A lot of wonderful young Christian men and women were there. But there was a great number in the Christian school who I had a more difficult time reaching than those pagans in the continuation high school. Most of them were, of course, in church every Sunday. And if I could simply define what the problem was, they were spoiled rotten. They were spoiled rotten. Disrespectful to authority, spiritually apathetic, involved in many of the same things that the kids in the Continuation school were involved in, and sadly, many of their parents didn't care. I thought, how could this be? You see, I'd come to a very sobering realization that something had gone seriously 
wrong along the way. That so many in the Christian community could lose sight of the fact that they were in need of this gospel and that they were broken sinners needing this. Needing the good news of Jesus Christ. Since as they had it so good, they couldn't see it. And there was a vain form of superiority and elitism that had developed among the covenant people. So essentially, I, I, I was... I was plunged into the two settings immediately where two types of people were set before me. The pagans on one end and the religious. And sadly, what I learned is that often the pagans were more inclined to hear. As painful as that was, it was the reality. And we have to be honest because what I just outlined is exactly what Paul is warning against in Romans chapter 2 in the first five verses. If we thought Romans 1 is strong when we read that, and we think Romans 1 is strong, Romans 2 is stronger. And essentially, what what Paul is saying here, I'm going to be very blunt, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you fools, do you think that you are more righteous than the really bad sinners outlined in Romans 1? Your attitude shows you to be a hypocrite. You are just as guilty, and unless you repent, your end will be worse than theirs, because you've been given all the more. It's a very sobering message this morning, and God is very sobering when it comes to hypocrisy. The issue before us this morning is how does God deal with the more upright of society? You'll remember what we just read in chapter 1, that, that he outlines some of the worst possible sins going on in the pagans all around us. He describes their idolatry in chapter 1, that they do all of these, these horrible things, that they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they, they do not worship God, they are not thankful in their lives, and so God's wrath is revealed there in that he gives them over three times to these ungodly lusts. How so? First, he gave them over to sexual immorality. He says, you want it, you got it. And so they're given over to all forms of of sexual immorality, uh, fornication, pornography, adultery. They run in those things, they live in those things, and God hands them over to it because that's what they want. And then he goes on, and he looks down from heaven and he sees his commandment scorns. And, and so he, because of their idolatry, the second thing he does is God gave them over in the lust of their hearts um, to a more perverse form of their sexual immorality, which was vile passions, which we understand as homosexuality, as sodomy, as lesbianism, whatever. We coin it where he says their women exchange that for what is against nature And what of the men? Well, men literally in the Greek inflamed in lust for one another, accomplishing that which is shameful and receiving back in themselves the due penalty for the error which was due. So so there's this progression in evil outlined in in Romans chapter 1 there, where it starts with sexual morality and, and it just continues like a downward spiral to vile passions. And then the third thing he outlines is God gave them over to a reprobate or debased mind where the whole mind is given over to evil continually. And every form of wickedness drives the action. And so you have this really graphic language at the end of Romans 1, 
They are filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's a big list, isn't it? That's a real big list. They're terrible sins, right? Of course they are. I mean, those are the Ted Bundys of society. Those are the serial killers. Those are the pedophiles. And I mean, we we hear these things and we say, yes, those sort of people in Romans chapter 1 are deserving of that kind of punishment. They're deserving of God's wrath upon them for those things. I mean, David throughout the Psalms would say those sort of things, wouldn't he? He would, he would constantly say, surely I hate those who, who hate you. And then shouldn't we be righteously angry with that kind of perversity in society all around us? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But the question this morning is, what would we expect Paul to say at this point? Praise God, you're not like that. That's what we would expect. That's what I would expect. Praise God, you're not like that. And the Jews would often say prayers like that. God, I thank you that I'm not like this, and I'm not like this, and like this. I'm not a a Gentile, and I don't behave like that was their prayer. I don't behave like this, and I don't do these things. And someone hearing Paul would respond and say, we aren't like that. I live a decent life. I do not give my body to sexual immorality. I certainly have, have never been involved in in those kind of gross things in Romans chapter 1. I mean, homosexuality? Come on. I'm not a homosexual. Surely my actions aren't evil continually. And we might expect Paul at this point in chapter 2 as he begins to speak to the religious people. He might expect him to say, look, you're right. Surely you've not lived up to God's righteous standard, but it's true. You've not resorted to that kind of perversity. And so after hearing Romans 1, those very severe indictments against the pagan world all around us, because that's who it's addressing, the pagans all around us, we would sit back as the religious people and say, yeah, you know, I agree with those assessments. I agree with them. The religious person has a set of morals, and we would hear these things, and we would say, you know, that's terrible. That's disgusting wickedness. That stuff needs to be proclaimed. Preach against it, brother. The church is failing in this task today. We don't hear these things preached. You go, Paul. You show us how to preach against this stuff. What does Paul do at this point? Verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable. Every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another... You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Ouch. Therefore, you always have to ask why that's there. Therefore, well, the therefore is because the the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven upon those really, really bad sinners in chapter 1, you are inexcusable. Why? Because you sit there condemning all of them and you're refusing to see that in your own heart and in your own life, the same things go on. 
and that you're just as bad. Now, come on, Paul. We're not that bad. You really want to put me in the same category in verse 26 with those homosexuals? I mean, really, here in in chapter 2, the ultimate hypocrisy is being exposed. Who is he talking to? Who is Paul talking to? That's the real question, isn't it? Well, he's writing to the Romans. And many have thought, specifically here, he's he's speaking of the Jews, who will come into focus in chapter 17, in verse 17. But I'm not totally convinced Paul is collectively speaking about the Jews. He's collectively speaking about moral people. The religious people. Notice he, he emphasizes here, every man of you, he's looking at the religious community saying this, those in the covenant community, those who have all of these external privileges of being a member of Christ's church externally, who think that they are totally exempt of what was just described in Romans chapter 1. Exempt from living like that, exempt from God's judgment, exempt from being that kind of a sinner. 17th century writer once wrote, while all people complain of ignorance and error, everyone exempts himself. And how many times you've gone and you've had somebody sit down with you and say, look, let me tell you how bad I've been this week. No one does that. They're going to tell you how bad everyone else was. They're going to talk about their sins. Look, beloved, the fact is here is that we refuse and cannot take an honest look at our own hearts. And we have to come to grips with that in Romans chapter 2. And there are a few things that Paul outlines here. First, that those who have God's moral standard, not just in creation, not just on the conscience, but have the very word of God that we hold and read, underestimate the real height of God's righteous standard. That's the real danger. They underestimate the real height of God's righteous standard. There are always those who think because they go to church or because of a long-standing place in the church and because dad and grandpa and great-grandpa went to that church, their service, their baptism, their profession on October 7, 1945, or and so on and so on, all of these things make them okay. And so Paul says, you're, you're quick, however, to condemn everyone else for their sin, but you're failing to see that your own sins render you guilty of the very same judgment. The emphasis here is on who? The self-righteous. It's on the hypocritical who are constantly making judgments of everyone else and everyone else's sins but their own. Now, I almost hear that today. I guess it has to be premised when you preach a message like this because we often hear that statement, don't judge, don't judge me. And that's just a common statement in our culture today. And it almost really has become a, a blatant agenda on people's part to want to justify patterns of sin and lifestyles of sin so that it tries to silence the person calling them to account of that lifestyle. And that is not what Paul's talking about here. Of course the Christian is to make judgments about sin. I mean, the whole Bible is full of judgments about sin. Jesus said, do not judge outwardly, but judge with righteous judgment. Meaning, you have to be able to discern what Christian behavior is and what Christian behavior isn't. And you discern that from the Word of God, whether the lifestyle is in accord with the Word of God or not. 
Read 1 Corinthians 6. It's clear. And if the Christian doesn't speak out against that kind of lifestyle, well, then he can share in those very evil deeds. The issue here is how that's done. And so when we see sinners in their sin, living in their sin, the Bible calls us to be firm. And yet, as Galatians 6 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What Paul is condemning here is a terrible attitude that develops in the so-called religious people of superiority and self-righteousness. God hates that. If there's anything that God hates, you see it here. I was watching The O'Reilly Factor not too long ago. Bill O'Reilly always has some very interesting things to say. And, and he stood up in his program and he, he was talking about some group that did some really heinous things. And in the middle of the show, he says, you know, I sure hope there's a hell. It's an interesting statement to me. Because if you really get what's behind his statement, they really deserve it. But my actions don't. Those people are really deserving. How sobering it must have been when Jesus looked up at all the covenant religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The point is, the Pharisees underestimated their own sin. And yet they were willing to look at the plank in everyone else's eye. And who were the Pharisees? The really painful thing about this, if we're honest, beloved, the Pharisees weren't the theological liberals. The Pharisees were the conservatives. It's interesting, in the long list of vices in chapter 1, included with sexual immorality, included with homosexuality, included with a totally debased mind is what? They're whisperers. They run around gossiping. They're backbiters. They're constantly attacking others behind their backs. They're proud. They're full of pride. Undiscerning? You mean that's in the same category as homosexuality? Undiscerning? Unforgiving? Unmerciful? Look, the the self-righteous person sitting in the pew hears these things and he shakes his head in chapter 1 and he says, how filthy, but it doesn't apply to me. Those are the pagans. I mean, honestly, how many of us could read Romans chapter 1 if we're really honest and say, you know, those are the Rosie O'Donnells of society. Those are the Ellen DeGeneres's. Those are the Ted Bundy's. But how many of us really said when you read Romans chapter 1, as Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I could do it. And in fact, those things go on in my heart daily. Fact is, we're constantly underestimating the depths of our own sin while seeing everyone else's. And what does Paul say? Well, Paul characterizes this here as a form of hypocritical judgment. He says, you who judge self-righteously practice the same things. I don't know how many times I've sat and listened to a sermon or or preached a sermon and heard so-and-so say, you know, I hope person over there heard that. And so... I don't know how many times I've heard that. And then 
immediately I've just resided now when I hear that and someone comes up to me or for instance, someone comes up to me after a sermon and says, you know, you preached that sermon right at me and I'm going to say from now on, yes, I did. Did you hear it? The shoe fits, wear it. I was preaching it right at you. And think about it. God actually through his sermon, through his servant addressed your sin. How humbling. The alternative is much worse. He'll let you go in it. Hear the word of God. And that's the point. Do we hear or do we harden our hearts against His Word? Paul says very clearly, the self-righteous people are in a worse predicament than the pagans really because of this point. Because you have enough knowledge in the Word of God to judge everyone else and to judge their sins because you have enough gall to look at the sinner in the, the pew next to you and act disgusted over them because of what they do. Then... You have enough discernment and you have enough knowledge to judge your own heart and your own condition. You know, this was just Jesus' tone, beloved. Jesus was very serious about this kind of stuff. Think about his Sermon on the Mount. We don't really hear sermons like this today. But think of his Sermon on the Mount. He stands up, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let me show you how great your righteousness must be. Let me show you. You ever murdered? You say you've never murdered. I tell you, if you've ever been angry with any of your neighbors without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. And if you call someone fool... Meaning, if you give verbal abuse to anyone in speaking out against them, right now, you're in danger of the hellfire. That's not me he's speaking to. Is it? How many murders do we have here today? Every hand should go up. I'm no adulterer, says the, the, the religious person. I, I've been faithful to my wife all these 60 years we've been married. And Jesus says what? Well, okay, if you've ever looked at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you are an adulterer, and you better go to great extremes to cut it out of your life, or your whole body will be in danger of the hellfire. We think a little look. A little look. Your whole body will be in danger of the hellfire. And in the same sermon, he puts oaths, false oaths right beside that, and then he puts divorce and remarriage right beside that. And we'll pick those and we'll say, well, that's the really bad one, and oaths is not as serious as divorce and remarriage, and, and so on and so on. Jesus says it all renders you guilty. All of it. All of it. We could go on. How many religious people are like the rich young ruler? who comes sprinting up to Jesus and he wants salvation and he bows the knee and he says, look, I've, I've, come out, I've kept your commandments. Lord, I'm not like them. I'm an upright and I'm a moral person. What is Paul's answer in verse 3 to all of this madness? He says, you know that the righteous judgment of God falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now we know he's considering very moral people. We know he's considering the religious people because they know God's judgments. 
they know what's outlined in chapter 1. And they know what's coming upon those pagans in chapter 1. Pagans don't think it's coming, but these religious people know. And Paul says, you know this. Basically, he's saying here, you've got a false confidence. You're deserving of God's wrath, and you're just as guilty. And the Greek here is really a lot stronger. I love how Donald Gray Barnhouse translates, translates this. And do you really figure that you will escape you? You. And then he gives this paraphrase, slang, which I believe is entirely appropriate in this section. You dummy. Do you really figure that you've doped out an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a ghost of a chance. There's no escape. Do you understand? No escape ever. And this means you, the respectable person sitting in judgment upon another fellow creature and remaining unrepentant yourself. To the religious people? And so Paul openly condemns the hypocrite here. And in the previous section, he, he exposed him, but now he openly condemns. And so there's this great number of very religious people who live like the world, who are involved in the very things in, in chapter 1, and they look down on them, but they refuse to see that they are living the same way. And a little small voice comes to them in the head and says, look, in the end, Everything will be okay. And everything will be fine. You've been raised with godly parents. You've been baptized. You're a member of the covenant community. And so think about this. Paul says to the hypocrites, you think you're going to escape the judgment of God. You practice the same things. You're living with a false confidence. And you can't read this, beloved, and say, why does this happen? Without asking that question, why does this happen? The only answer that Paul gives this morning is that we've traded on God's goodness. As one pastor said, all of us are inclined to think that everything in the end will work out fine because God is too good and God is too merciful to send anyone to hell. Too good and too merciful to send anyone to hell. What does Paul say in verse 4? Do you despise the riches of His goodness? forbearing and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Again, religious people. He says, do you literally think lightly in the Greek? Do you think lightly? It's to have little appreciation for God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. Do you think lightly of the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Let's put this together. The hypocrite lives thinking God will hold him to a different standard. And so he looks down in judgment upon the really bad sinners of this world, refusing to judge and discern his own heart. And even worse, he sits and he attends the church, attends worship, does all these religious duties, thinking since God is good and since God is forgiving and since God is a God of love, and in the end it will work out fine for me, somehow, some way God will accept me because of my moral and my upright life. What I'm describing here is an approach to God that has totally taken His blessings and His goodness for granted. And so they think, how could God be angry at me? Look at all these blessings I have. Look at how good I've had it all my life. This is the testimony that things are okay between God and me. And they've not understood that they have these very blessings 
only because God is forbearing and God is being kind in His stay of their lives so that they would repent of their own sins and come to Him on their hands and knees. What what was Jesus always after? He was after people with what? A broken and a contrite heart. That's how you know. So that their lives, would they would come broken and on their knees looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Yes, look to Christ. But these never really think that when the calls come from the pulpit each and every week to repent and turn for sins, that it's aimed at them. You never really think it's for them. Because they've hardened their hearts. Paul is saying here, the blessings that people receive, and the reason we receive them is why? He's a long-suffering God. And God is full of grace. And He is full of mercy. And He's commonly good. And people all the time bank and they trade on that as a sign that they are in favor with God when actually He is staying their lives and being patient with them to give them time to repent. That's the mystery. That's how God views it. He says, do you think lightly upon the riches of His goodness, not knowing He leads you to repentance? So He's thinking how good God has been to us. And who can deny that? I mean... Adam and Eve sinned. What do we really deserve? Everyone always says today, what's fair? That's not fair about election and so on and so on. What's really fair is that God should have cast us all into hell after Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. What's not fair is that we're here right now. And you're hearing a call like this to repentance. That would have been fair to judge us. And yet to an unbelieving world that hates Him and that despises Him and that scorns Him, Read Paul to the pagans in Acts chapter 16. He fills your heart with gladness, with food and all these things, that you would repent. Paul says, do you think lightly upon the fact that you have creation all around you that decries His glory? We step outside every morning. We see His glory all around us. Do you hold back the fact of His kindness in your own consciences when, when you're sinning and the conscience strikes you and you suppress that? which He put in you to stop the sin. Worst of all, do you trade on His kindness when He's written His very will in this for how we should live before Him in this world. And He's given you everything you need for a life of godliness and salvation. First, Further, He says, do you think lightly about His forbearance, meaning His tolerance, God, that God is not giving you what you really deserve? Do you think lightly upon those things? That's what Paul asks religious people. You know, constantly, we come to the Old Testament and, and um, we come across the, these terrible judgments. And often, I, I would, as a kid, I would grow up and I would say to myself, you know, it just didn't seem like the judgment fits the crime there. The punishment does not fit that crime. I mean, Nadab and Abihu incinerated just for offering up some false worship. How often does that go on every day today in our world? What about the two bears slaughtering 42 youths for simply mocking Elisha? How often have we talked back to those in authority over us? What about God striking down Uzzah just for for grabbing the ark so that it didn't stumble down the mountain in shame? Why? Well, the simple reason is that God set forth all these examples 
because people had become totally complacent in disregard for Him and His holiness and had totally taken His grace for granted. And they began to think they deserved it. They began to think we're the covenant people and we're pretty good. And the Lord was constantly coming with His prophets and He was saying, don't put your trust in those things. I mean, think of Deuteronomy 9. Do not think in your heart. This is God's covenant people, Israel. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out. And that's all the pagan nations. It's all the pagan nations around them. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me here to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that He may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They understood that the Lord, there he goes on, therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. They had experienced so much blessing, so much prosperity, they were full, they were in the land, and they had totally lost sight of what, beloved? Their greatest need. Just like those Christian school students who I couldn't reach with the gospel, the pagans I could. That was Israel's story. And so God would constantly remind them by bringing down some terrible visual judgment upon an offense that didn't seem to fit the crime to get the message across very clear. All of you are guilty. I'm guilty as a pastor. All of us are guilty. All of us are deserving of His hottest judgment for the littlest of sins. Don't take it for granted. You don't deserve anything you have. Imagine Isa simply putting out his hand to stop the ark from stumbling and God strikes him dead. And David, we read, was afraid of God that day. That, loved ones, was in the middle of a joyful celebration. The ark was coming back into Jerusalem. Imagine the early church prospering and growing and just for a little lie to the Holy Spirit. God strikes dead Ananias and Sapphira, visible members of the covenant community. And what happened? Fear came upon everyone so no one dared join the church. How's that for church growth? Then he wouldn't like that. Do you take lightly God's goodness, forbearance, in other words, his tolerance of your own sin, because the word there is forbearance means tolerance, and finally is patience, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads anyone to repentance. So God is, is withholding his judgment and his patience and kindness and giving this unbelieving world time to repent. And he looks at the religious people and he says, do you despise what you've received by the way you're living? Do you take lightly his goodness? The reason you're still here is to repent. Paul says, if it were not for God's gracious goodness, no one would be alive. So what does he say in verse 5? 
It's a very sobering message, beloved. I delivered this to my own body. And it's a very sobering message. But in accordance with the hardness, your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look, he says, because you continue to look at everyone else's sins but your own, because you practice the things you condemn others for, the very things that he described in Romans 1, this hardening process is hardening the person who refuses to look at their own hearts and repent and bow them. Spiritual arteries, if you will, become harder and harder and harder. And he says, wrath is being heaped up for the day of wrath. The whole point of the message then this morning is this. Have you become so accustomed to hearing of God's grace and goodness that we refuse to see our own hearts? Such an important point. We have a whole book in the Old Testament to show us by example, of what that looked like when people would not hear and harden their hearts, the very religious people, against the Lord. And First Corinthians makes the connection. He says, look, Israel did this and Israel did this, but you don't. They're set forth as an example for you so that you would not walk in those things. And he says to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. I wonder today, if one of the members here was struck down visibly, for the littlest of sins, how much more we would take the Lord's, Lord's calling. It's serious to take His calling. It's a serious thing to be a Christian. And we're living in a day when there's no more fear of God. Fear of God is a lost thing. Fear and holy reverence and awe of who He is is lost. God hates it. So what Paul is compelling us to see here today is simply this. There's hope in this message. Everyone is equally bad before the Lord. The pagan and the religious. What's the answer? There's only one answer for both. And we can go to Jesus to get that answer, can't we? One day he's walking. The multitudes come up to him. His disciples are with him. The very religious people are following him. The Jews are following him. The multitudes are following him. And some group comes up and they say, Lord, they ask about the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed all these people. And Jesus knew what was really behind that. It was they must have been really bad sinners because that tower fell and killed them. It's kind of like saying New Orleans was wiped away by that flood and the, the, the wave and, and, the, and the, the hurricane and the storm because they're bad sinners over there. And they are bad sinners over there. That's what Jesus said to the religious, to the righteous, to the pagans that we need to hear. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other sinners? I tell you the truth. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All. That's our loving Jesus. And what Romans 2 is about today is people had come thinking God's judgments must have fallen upon them in Romans 1 because they're so bad. We could interject with the words of Paul, do we take lightly the kindness, forbearance, patience of God, not knowing that His goodness leads us to repentance. And the fact that you still exist is evidence that He's being long-suffering. So the question then this morning is, do we ever bow the knee and confess? What does our life look like? Is it a life of confession. See, confession and repentance 
is a whole life of turning from sin and fighting against it till the day that you die. Do we bow? Do we confess? Have you had your heart open to see that in me, Pastor Gordon, when I open my own heart, it's like lifting hell's lid. The heart is deceitful above all things. Those who don't sit in self-righteous judgment on all the other bad sinners. And they, but those who do say with Paul, I am the chief of sin. They are like the man who returned to Jesus. Remember that man and the leprosy was healed? Though Jesus said, where are the other nine? They're like the man beating his chest in the back of the sanctuary because he saw his sin, rather than the man who stood in front and said, I thank you, I'm not like this. They're like the woman who poured the alabaster flask of all that she had over Jesus' head while the others mocked. They're like the woman who would do anything just to touch his garments while the other shoved her away. They're like the demoniac who after being freed said, Lord, let me be with you while the crowds wanted him gone. They're like David. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's the attitude of a Christian. That's the heart of a Christian. They are those who say, I'm the guilty one. And you know what the Lord says to those today who say that and come to Him with that kind of heart? He will not cast you out. That's the Gospel. He will not cast you out. To those who come to the Lord like this, you have been covered in the rich robes of His righteousness, declared and imputed Christ's righteousness has been to your account, just as if, what? You had never sinned, nor been a sinner. That's the glory, justification, and our gospel. So we come full circle today. As is recognized by all, the greatest thing to know is that Jesus Christ is able to save you from your sins. The second greatest thing is to know you require. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves in your sight and ask that you would lift us up as you have promised to do. As we have heard your word may be applied to our hearts in the power of your spirit, that we would not presumptuously take all of this for granted, but that we would recognize we don't deserve anything, but are here because of your abundant grace and mercy and because you have lifted us up in working that repentance in our hearts through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.